episode 28 of the Brown and Black podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. If you haven't had the chance yet, follow us at Brown Black Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We'd love to hear from you. Well, we've reached the middle of December and our country is transforming at an alarming rate, especially for people of color in media. Just this week alone, major stories are changing the newsrooms all across the country. We're going to be doing essentially a two-part episode where we speak to two men of color driving narratives that change our perception of what it is to be brown and black in America. First, we have an in-depth conversation with director Reginald Hudlin, whose new Disney movie, Safety, is out in theaters and streaming platforms right now. Hudlin is one of the more multifaceted people you'll ever get to talk to. He is a screenwriter, director, producer, media executive, and comic book writer to boot. He was the former president of entertainment for BET, has written numerous graphic novels, co-produced the 2016 Academy Awards. Mike, I'm running out of air here. <laughs> as well as the Emmys. Plus, he's directed classics such as the 1990s House Party. Remember that? Hey! Oh. <laughs> and Eddie Murphy's Boomerang, which is one of my favorite uh, movies uh, growing up. He also earned uh, an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture as a producer for Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. What has this guy not done, Mike? Listen, let's not forget that he produced the very first black animated film, Bay Bay's Kids. That's, it shouldn't have been. Yeah, I don't exactly. even know That's that That's just one. like another credit. Amazing to talk oh, to, wow. and so is our second. In our part two, we talked to director Keith McWhorter about his new epics documentary series, By Any Means Necessary, The Times of the Godfather of Harlem. And we discuss how art and culture are brought together and how brown and black people through music and culture are doing it again in 2020. And that's really what the theme of these two shows are. But here's a snippet of what to expect from quarter segment, which is going to be part two. But how do you see things today in the present moment with Latinos and Blacks, with Brown and Blacks? Is there still that same unity? Ultimately, we're all fighting for human rights. And I don't know if we're all always organized <laughs> that way to help each other advance each other's agenda. Right now we're in a really interesting time and I hope that we'll all get to a place where we can look at these issues as human rights and really find a connection there because I think that's going to really be what's sustainable for us all. All right, Mike, let's get right into the big news stories everyone is talking about this week. And I must say, we've already touched on this topic very, very lightly, which is that Warner Brothers announced 17 films that will be releasing in theaters and HBO Max in 2021. What we have not done, Mike, <laughs> is follow up on this Telenovela, bro. This soap opera that came out of nowhere with Nolan and Stanky and who's leaving and what's going on and people are pissed Please. and people are calling Patty Jenkins a sellout. And man, so let me kind of take you through what's been going on. So after 
we've obviously since the death and rebirth of movie theaters episode that we did uh, back in October, we've known that this moment was going to come, Mike. We knew that this moment, this 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 halt of the evolution or the 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 saving of movie theaters in its traditional form was going to change by the end of the year. The matter was. Who was going to pull the trigger? We had teases by Universal Pictures with Trolls World Tour, uh, Disney with Mulan and Soul, but never 17 straight films. Essentially, their whole slate of movies, including Dune. So now that that happened and that's official, there was this whole story, essentially, of Christopher Nolan being interviewed by Kim Masters at The Hollywood Reporter saying, hey, so what do you think about this? He bashed Warner Brothers a new one, calling it the worst streaming ever. Yet, this hypocrite of a director uh, uh, doesn't understand for 20 years, Warner Brothers has been putting out his movies. Every movie he's been putting out, Warner Brothers, The Dark Knight, Batman Returns, all those sequels, uh, Dunkirk. I mean, this guy's a Warner Brothers dude. How fucked up is it, man? For this guy to bite off the hand that, that's been feeding him and, and making him Christopher Nolan, whatever the hell that means, uh, in today's market. So then you had that. And, and look, and, and, and then John Stanky, he is the CEO of AT&T now. And this guy's in charge of Warner Media. So they asked him recently at a speech that he was doing recently and they asked him about the HBO Max thing and how he feels. He's like, listen, I stand by my crew and that's Jason Kalar, the CEO of Warner Media, and Sarnoff, who's in charge of all movies and content there. And he's with them. And I'll tell you why he's with them. He's with them because he, the whole reason that HBO Max even exists is to create a new Hollywood, to create a new movie studio that is virtual, digital, that is electronic and not traditional in film from the 1900s, seeing it on a big screen. They understand that consumer behavior has accelerated with the pandemic. They know that their success in the next 100 years is going to be dependent on HBO Max. And I happen to love HBO Max. I think it's a little too expensive, but I think their library is one of the most unsurpassed ones. I think the worst one is Peacock, but HBO Max, I really, tr most of the stuff that I watch is not even on Netflix anymore, man. It's on HBO Max. So he knows it. I know it. And he stands by it. But agents have been up in arms. They're like, hey, wait a minute. But what about the amount of mo money that's coming in for movie theaters that we're not getting in our pockets anymore? So it's become a whole war with money, with rights. And essentially, here's the stance on the agents and the creatives. They knew that movies were making a billion dollars from Disney, Universal, Warner Brothers, etc., and they knew that there was a lining their pockets so they can buy a third Maserati and a new fourth Hollywood mansion that they don't need. But it's status. It's what people do. They indulge and they become blinded by that greed. And so now what they're saying is, but wait a minute. If movie theaters aren't, if studios aren't going to be putting out movies in movie theaters anymore, then the possibility of these movies making a billion dollars now probably won't happen. And I'm telling you right now, right now, Mike. I don't think that another movie studio is ever going to make a billion dollars again at the box office at the current pace. We're going to be seeing those numbers shrink. And what happens 
when box office uh, box office numbers shrink, pockets of the creators of the agents shrink. So somehow they want to tell Warner Brothers now, hey, if you put it on streamer instead of making a hundred bucks, I'm going to make fifty bucks. I don't want that to happen, and I'm going to go to war with you. And this is not including the movie theaters themselves that are seeing their demise right in front of their eyes. So the most hated studio right now in Hollywood is Warner Brothers. But I actually think it is the most brilliant move that any streamer has done to date. Well, I have a lot to say. First, I'm just going to make my audio comment on Chris Nolan. Um, um, so I, I think, you know, I, I, I agree with you. Warner's has a fantastic catalog and I will say, and this is no disparaging to Warner's, it's not brilliant. It's just obvious to me. It's obvious that this is where we've been heading for quite some time. The agents don't see it like that. Nolan doesn't see it like that. In terms of how the agents see it, and I understand Nolan, and Nolan, you know, he's an artist and he's a filmmaker, but there is always backlash. There's always backlash for a changing of how things were. If you remember when digital came, just digital, period, like shooting on digital, purists, people who love film, there's still filmmakers who refuse to shoot on digital, even though digital is how most movies are made now. So there's always going to be people that are going to be against any kind of change. As a filmmaker myself, do I love the idea that a film is going to be potentially not get the big screen theatrical experience that I grew up watching in a packed house movie theater? Yeah, but you know what? Eventually, they're going to have to deal with it because there are things that we as a culture in terms of how we consume entertainment and information have changed. We've evolved. Technology has changed us, and this pandemic has only hastened what we knew was going to come. We were just talking about the rise of the home theater. We're in it now. There was a ton of people buying home theaters. If you remember, even our guests who spoke on this. I'm very seriously considering getting a, a completely new setup. Like, to be honest with you, I don't even have a TV. Like, I don't generally watch TV. I have a pretty big iMac that I usually watch movies on. But now that I, I'm at the space now where even if movies were open right now, I would not necessarily feel super comfortable watching and enjoying one in a theater right now. So I am thinking about getting a pretty big screen and a whole new sound system and all of that so I can kind of enjoy them at home while we're waiting to get all this stuff sussed out with COVID. Well, certain movies that would make me really buy a home theater system won't be out next year and we they, there may be a way of seeing them black widow fast appears nine etc i mean as far as the setup here we have a fairly large tvs around the house with decent sound system but we don't have anything super elaborate thus far but you would you consider like getting more elaborate if you're going to be seeing more movies at home now yes actually thanks to the pandemic i was able to downgrade my uh, home theater and I'm looking forward to upgrading it uh, next year hopefully I mean that's the plan you know with the movies being pushed to next year uh, it gives me a chance to actually prepare better which is great what we were talking about there is whether or not we would do it what what would make us do it and what really it comes down to is content that's what's going to make you decide to invest in a home theater or a sound system or 
Whatever it is that entertains you, whatever it is you need, that's what you're going to do. We live in an a la carte society. You don't have to wait for a movie to come on digital. You don't have to wait for a radio show or a TV show. It's on demand. So this is what the public has demanded. This is the economy we live in. And, and like you said, scaling back. Warner Brothers stands to make more money. Because at the end of the day, would you rather me give you $100 or would you rather me lock you in to $10 a month in perpetuity? The subscription-based model, you name an industry that has not adopted subscription-based. Even you buy software like Photoshop, it's subscription-based now. Yeah, the Adobe Suite is uh, subscription-based. Magazines are online are now paywalls. The Wall Street Journal, uh, everyone's turning to this. I mean, it's, it's it the is. logic. But this is all about money, Mike. This is just capitalism, you know, and what I said in a tweet recently uh, when I wrote it to somebody, I said, America was built on capitalism, not art. Sure. And what I hate about these guys is that they're making it seem that it's about the art when it's really about the damn money. Wasn't Christopher Nolan the one pushing people during the yep. height of the pandemic to go to the movies yep. to watch his movie? He didn't give a shit whether we died. He didn't give a shit whether we got sick with COVID. He didn't give a shit about anything. It was like, I need to get them because I need to keep. Fuck you, Christopher Nolan, for wanting to kill us, for pushing us to go to the theater. Why? So you can keep on something that it's eventually going to evolve. It's old. It's an old model, Nolan. It doesn't work anymore. And now we're seeing all the flaws on it, all the weaknesses, all the rats coming through the cracks. And you still want us to live there. I'm done with this guy, man. This guy has no sense of what we want. It's like Christopher Nolan's world and we just live in it. What you just said uh, about the industry and the movie industry could be said uh, in many ways about the society we live in. There are so many things about it that have, let's just say, have been unfair. Is it more fair to the artist to lose out on that money? I, I can't say that it necessarily is, but just like everything changes, but Mike, why not? I see. I, I still don't even understand that part, that comment, because to me, you make money depending on the market. If the market makes less money, you make less money. But what these guys want to do is they want to keep the high prices and not adapt to the market. I'm going to play devil's advocate with you. Two things. One, we know what's going to happen with movies. There will be less movie theaters and movies will cost more and the experience will be a lot more like we have some theaters here, like the IPix Theater, where you got a couch and luxury movie experiences. I think the luxury movie experiences is where we're headed. That's one because it's safer and it's you know you're willing to pay the extra money and and that's where New York City and LA is headed to. Where I think they're headed to. That's that's one. Two, if like Netflix has shown us how streaming is done, you've got subscribers and Amazon was like, oh, we got a lot of people too, so they started their own. The whole deal is if you've got subscribers. You want to keep them, you want to cater to them, and you have to keep giving them new content. Netflix has new stuff coming out like every month. Every month there's a ton of stuff coming out. You can't even keep up with what Netflix has coming out. They have to because you have to feed this. So what does that mean, though? That means as opposed to where there's different tiers and you sell your theatrical rights and then your overseas rights and then your DVD rights and then your streaming rights and your airplane. The theme park rights. Instead of that, now it's all one sell. If you're the artist, you sell the movie, they own it digitally everywhere at once, and then they make the money. You may get a percentage, 
but you do not participate in the monthly your film is bringing in new subscribers but you don't necessarily like howard stern did when sirius started he brought in new subscribers so he got a piece of the action these artists will not get a piece of the action as these streaming giants build themselves on the content or what could be argued is the back of these creators. The creators will not share in the profits in the same way they used to. And that's just the reality. By the way, just uh, in Howard Stern, just re-upped that Sirius XM for another five is. years. Audio is business is, is booming. It's picking up more than ever. And uh, that's great. All right, Mike. So let's move on and talk about these historic hires that just popped out out of nowhere this week that kind of rumbled the seams of the newsroom divisions all across the country. Probably the biggest announcement came on MSNBC. Rashida Jones will now be the first black executive to lead one of the major cable news networks in a major shift in media leadership and will have a lasting impact in the future of how our stories are told. Phil Griffin is stepping down after 12 years there, but I think it was 24, 25 years overall in the company. There has never been a black leader in a major newsroom. Now, this comes after Cesar Conde, Peruvian American who used to work over at Univision mm -hmm. and Telemundo. He's now the chairman over here. He asked for a 50% uh, female and diversity staff by some year. Um, and this seems to be headed down there. Phil Griffin said that he was stepping down after the election. And you know how it is, man. What happens with cable news networks, if you're the opposing network of the president, your yep. ratings go up. If you get the president that agrees with your network's opinion, ratings go down. And I think this guy saw the writing on the wall and said, I'm out of here because the ratings are going to go down. Let somebody else handle it. But what kind of opportunities, man, do you think can come out of this leadership? I asked this on Twitter and several people were scratching their heads like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I go, what does this mean for brown and black America? I was like, what do you mean? It? I'm going to have to talk to Mike about this. There are a couple things I got to say. One, hiring someone black or Latino does not unilaterally mean that it's a force of change. It does not mean that. You always have to look at who that hire is and what their track record. Oh, stop, Mike. I, do I have to? St oh, come. Wait, hold on. Let, a me, Let me get this straight. <laughs> Daniel Cameron. Can I say Daniel Cameron? Can I say Daniel Cameron? Is that's all I got to say? Daniel Cameron. Okay. Daniel uh, Cameron. Yeah, yeah. That's all I got to say. That being said, I think this, there's no comparison there's no comparison to what kind of coverage and the narrative. Here's the thing, and I'll never forget this. I remember living in New York, this is in the pre-Uber era, trying to catch a cab as a black man in New York. Cabs just ride on by you. Did I ever tell you this story? I, you told me this story, yeah. Then you know the story. So basically, the cab driver picked me up, and, he, and I asked him, why did he pick me up? And he said that in his country, on the news, it's only black people committing the crimes. Hmm. Who controls that narrative? And if that narrative is what is seen around the world universally, that, that brown and black people are the criminals, that, that Black Lives Matter are just terrorists and, and, and they're rioters and, and, and Latinos and Mexicans are just trying to jump over the border. That narrative is controlled by the news. That narrative is controlled by those in charge of media. So... I think the lasting impact here, just like Jerrica Duncan and Adriana Diaz were named anchors of CBS Weekend News, I feel like we're in the middle 
of a racial reckoning. That's what I think is happening. I agree. But, you know, here's the other thing. How many times have we had conversations? I mean, for years, Mike, and this has been the national conversation too. anybody that's been asked, how do we change uh, going from white media to diverse media? How do we get our Latino stories told? How do we get our black stories told? And the number one theme, the recurring theme amongst all those answers has been, we got to put people of color in positions of power. Now that we have it, it doesn't mean anything. Of course anything. it does. What do you mean it doesn't mean anything? But but you just finished saying that, you know, no major change or force of change comes no, no, in these no, positions no, 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 of power no, 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 when no. they're diverse. I was qualifying. That's not what I meant. I was qualifying just to say that just hiring a black or Latino does not mean that things will change. That being said. But they should change when you're chairman and you're president of news. 100% agree. I mean, a Latino man hired a black woman. Enough said. Brown and black. Yeah, enough said. Brown, black unity right there. So here's the question, Mike. Yes. Will there be more black and Latino anchors on MSNBC? There have to be. Will it go from being a white network to a brown-black network or a mix of all of them? Will more stories that are diverse, which is one of the problems of going to black and brown communities and talking to people that don't have those opportunities, whose stories are untold, who go invisible, whose voices are silenced, Will those stories change editorially? Will more black executives and brown executives be hired in positions as producers, executive producers? Will Morning Joe and, you know, the Today Show become more black? I mean, these are all questions that matter because image representation matters. And if you see a network that reflects your skin color, that reflects your opinions, that reflects your experiences on life, then you're watching something that is purely and absolutely American. But when the hell have we seen that outside of Univision and BET? We haven't. All these major mainstream networks are all white. So to me, this is a massive move. Monica Richardson, new executive editor at the Miami Herald, who's also inheriting El Nuevo Herald. How will that change things in Miami? We know that Latinos there are are mostly Cuban. They run the show. They're white, racist and conservative and Trump supporters. Will they chew and spit this woman out by the end of the year? Is that what they're looking for? We know there's a lot of racism in Florida. So these are key, key questions. And I don't know the answers to it, but this idea that you put a position, a a, a black woman in a position of power to kind of keep the status quo, that's not working for me. First of all, I don't think that that's what's going to happen. I don't think that there'd be any point in Cesar Conde becoming chairman of NBC Universal and then turning around and hiring someone like Rashida Jones if they were not on the same page to changing things. If you're asking that question of me, I would say, yes, that is where we're headed. That narrative will be changed. Those voices will be heard. That's my hope. So when are we getting our TV show? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's call up Monica right now. Let's say Monica, Caesar. Let, let's we'll do a group text to Monica and Caesar at the same time. <laughs> See, you're, you're brown. She's black. Let's do this. Let's do let's this. Let's do this.
Next, we're going to talk with Reginald Hudlin, who, as Jack mentioned earlier, is an enormous multi-hyphenate. He's a filmmaker, a producer. He has run television studios. He's written comic books. He created the character of Shuri that we all love in Black Panther and who's going to be featured in the next Black Panther. He is truly someone who has helped change the narrative. He's produced a number of television shows, documentaries. The new movie that he's done, Safety, is about an actual student who put his football scholarship on the line when he took custody of his 11-year-old little brother. It's based on a real person. His name was Ray McElrathby, and he's played by Jay Reeves in the film. And what makes Safety a Disney film and what makes it a sports film and what makes it a film of significance is, for me, is it changes the narrative. This is about an extraordinary young man who was faced with extraordinary circumstances and did things that, let's just say, the narrative that you hear about what young black men and young Latino men can achieve is very, very wrong. And this film addresses it in both a funny and moving way. So we got a chance to talk with him about the importance of us being able to tell our own stories, us being able to be in a position to make sure our stories are told. What does sacrifice mean to you? It means being selfless. Committed. Now our tradition here is unlike any other. We're family. Now, Ray, these scholarships are yearly. You perform on the field, you perform in the classroom, and if you don't, they take that all away. Yes, coach. You can't be satisfied. There's no guaranteed spot on my team. It's my brother. Again. Baymar. He's coming. Ray, earlier this morning, I got her into a 30-day inpatient program. We'll be placing Faymar in foster care. Can't I just have a family member watch me? It's cool. Should be getting back to school anyway. I'll be good. Something in me's awakening. Uh-huh. Wait. I'll take him. All the naysayers stay praying that I wouldn't make I had to bring my little brother to live with me on campus. I had to look inside, find the motivation. May we build bridges and break limits. Mom's gone. It's just you and me. Trying to make a better way when the day's finished. You don't have to do this on your own. For the future, we winning the day winning. This is our story. I just want to leave it. What a pleasure to meet you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, it's, it's a double pleasure for me because I'm, I'm good friends with your brother. Yeah, so, well, yes, we're, we're very, very happy to have you here. Essentially, I wanted to ask you uh, about safety. Um, mm -hmm. This is a movie that comes in an interesting time in our lives in Hollywood when distribution is being disrupted. Uh, you guys are going out to Disney Plus. Uh, everyone's going to be able to see you. What what is what was the experience of doing this particular story? Did it connect with you at the root and was the outcome everything you thought it would be? Unlike a lot of my projects, this landed in my lap. 
You know, hmm. my, my producer had gotten the rights from Ray 14 years ago. He had been developing the project. It just couldn't get it to happen. And then when Disney started uh, the streaming platform, he goes, great. Let me take it there. I think they'll like this. And in fact, they loved it and got on board and said, uh, you know, they, they brought a, 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 you know, this really talented guy, uh, um, Randy McKinnon, you know, to do a rewrite. And they were like, okay, uh, let's go out. They thought, well, let's see what Reggie thinks. I read it. I loved it. You know, look, scripts usually fall in three buckets. Bad, good, but not for me. And <laughs> the trickier one, like, oh, there's something in there, but needs some polishing. This was none of those three. This was a good movie that was ready to shoot. Wow, so it was turnkey. The rarest thing of all. Because normally I get, I said, yo, I have a vision. I can make this work. And like, no, no, no. We're just going to shoot these pages. <laughs> We're good to go. Um, it was for Disney Plus. We knew it was going to be a streamer. That did not change the way I made the movie. Meaning mm. I made it for the big screen, right? And it's a tragedy that with COVID, we wouldn't at least have a premiere at a big theater because let me tell you, when you see that football on the big screen, it's a good time. Um, but that said, you know, you can get a really big TV um, at Best Buy or, 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 or Walmart for like 500 bucks. So, like, I think it's don't just subscribe, but, you know, invest in a big ass TV for your home and uh, it, it'll be a worthwhile investment. Well, I have to say, it's it's interesting Jack's take on it, because when I saw the film, one of the things that really stood out to me is the camera work. Your camera is always moving. It's flying. It's doing everything. Even when not that much is yeah. happening, it's in the classroom. The camera's flying. The so, bedroom. The those bedroom. shots. In the, I was like, whoa. Wow. So so talk to me. What made you, I mean, and, and I'll have to say what I was reminded of is how sh sports are shot for big screen TVs. So tell me a little bit about your storytelling style for this particular story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like to switch it up. I mean, I like to switch up the kind of movies I'm making, you know, from a teen comedy to an adult romantic comedy to, uh, you know, a, a drama to an animated movie to a documentary, right? So <clears throat> having made Marshall, right, which I really wanted to make in that kind of classic way. I was really influenced by Written on the Wind, which is such an elegant, stylish movie. Um, but with this, with young people playing football, I wanted high energy. I wanted it to be pumped. And um, Shane Hurlbut, who was my DP, he was like a mad scientist. We were all trying to top each other with freaky, funky ideas. And we had so much fun shooting this movie. And it's funny, the producers would be like, whoa, you're doing what? It'll be fun. <laughs> It'll be very cool. Because here's the biggest challenge. Football is shot beautifully, right? When you watch Monday night, it's pretty damn good. So how do we top that in a movie? And that comes from subjectivity. You know, let's get inside the helmet. Let's get inside the psychology uh, and the anxiety of the players. So when he's, you know, 
you know, at practice, he doesn't have his act together. Bam, he gets his bell rung by a guy. I want to feel what he's feeling. When he finally does get his act together and he's there at the big game and he sees the tell by the opposing player and he warns everybody, you're like, we're in it, you know? So, so that way we're not just watching football. We're advancing character. We're advancing narrative. And I, I figure that's how we give you something you can't just see on Monday Night Football. Uh, Reginald, I wanted to talk to you about how crucial it is to be telling black stories today. Um, is it more crucial than it was before? Is it more crucial now? Because we need to make these statements. This is a black story for everybody. And uh, to quote you in an interview, you had said that there's all different sides of who we are as people and you don't have to be black to relate to it. But everything you see on screen is going to be authentically black. Mm -hmm. That might scare some people when something's too authentically black. How do you blur the lines between something being very black, but not, not, I guess, fearful to some and make it universal enough that everybody can watch it while it's still black? You know who's a really successful global crossover artist? James Brown. Right. James Brown is black, black, blackity black. <laughs> right, <laughs> but people go, man, I love that James Brown. <laughs> and so that doesn't mean anything. Look, when Akira Kurosawa was making his movies, he wasn't thinking about me, right? But by being true to, you know, the story he was telling and the world he was telling it in, he spoke to me. You know, and you know the the, the same with Bunuel or Renoir or any other you know, international filmmaker, you tell your truth with authenticity and authenticity rings a bell around the planet, no matter where you're coming from, you feel the realness. So authenticity is the safest way to go. Well, I have to, I have to say, I agree with you hundred percent. I think in all art, it's truth is always what, you know, people respond to. It's always been important. The difference is, the increase in opportunity to tell a broader range of stories than ever before. I mean, I mean, when I started, you know, I did comedies. A, I love comedy. I've spent all my life training in comedy, you know, studying Monty Python, studying Woody Allen, studying all the masters. Um, but also that was the way you could get in. The idea that I would one day be able to tell a theatrical feature film about Thurgood Marshall seemed impossible. There's no way you could ever get money to do that. And it happened. And, you know, sometimes we as black people don't want to admit things are getting better uh, because sometimes getting better is incremental. And we don't want to act like, well, all our problems are solved. So we don't want to admit progress. But the fact is, over the last 30 years, black people have made tremendous progress in the film and television industry, and particularly in the last three to five years. Um, black Panther making a billion dollars was a huge bellwether moment where you go, okay, it doesn't star Will Smith or Denzel Washington. It stars the next generation of stars, Chadwick and Michael B., and it 
proves my long-held theory that if you make a genre film, specifically a science fiction genre film, you will transcend all the nonsense about how something doesn't travel because that genre is more important than any of that stuff. And, you know, so that success amongst many other successes has finally gotten Hollywood to a place where they're like, oh, uh, this is not the future. This is the now. And we (laughs) need to do this. So it's been wonderful that, you know, the floodgates have been opened and we can start dealing uh, what was what I call the burden of history, which is that the hundreds of years of stories that need to be told are finally getting told, you know, and they're all rushing out. And it's a beautiful thing. All right. Wow. You know, everything you said there, like, I want to jump through the screen and kiss you because I, I, <laughs> I, I, I you have no idea. I'm such a, you know, I guess what you'd call a, a, an Afrofuturist. But um, let me, you know, you, you actually answered half of my question because you've done movies. You know, you're probably one of the most accomplished storytellers. Mm-hmm. You've done comic books, you've done television, you've done events, you've done, you know, everything. It's all storytelling. Um and black storytelling, storytelling about people of color, you know, you've done historical, you know, this is, you know, semi-historical, took place mm-hmm. in the past, Marshall, but you've also done futuristic, and mm-hmm. we see the power of that. I just want to know what your thoughts are on the power of uh, both historical fiction and futuristic fiction. The now is one thing, but the power of historical fiction and the power of these future stories where you can talk about stuff. To me, there's always a relation between comedy and science fiction because it allows you to talk about things in a way mm-hmm. that's not didactic and mm-hmm. people don't realize they've learned something. So I just want to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. The, I mean, obviously I've tried to work in that whenever possible. And for a long time, that was just not a place we could go at the appropriate budget level. Um, you know, so I did stuff like Space Traders on HBO or me writing Black Panther for, you know, years uh, for Marvel or projects that I was not able to do, like um, my, uh, you know, Parliament Funkadelic movie, which is, you know, sort of the, of all the Afrofuturists that influenced me, there's no greater influence uh, to me than George and the whole P-Funk cosmology. So now those things and many more are some of the, you know, priority projects for me that I'm going to be moving toward. I mean, not to mention just reviving the whole milestone universe uh, and, and that happening in a number of platforms, both in comic books and television and film and so on. So he who doesn't understand the past, doesn't understand the present. If you don't understand the present, you don't understand the future. So I like playing um, across all timelines, um, you know, obliterate all lines, total control. Reginald, I noticed that you had directed an episode of Telenovela from Eva Longoria on NBC, which is yes. a Latino, essentially, show that was on Broadcast Network. Unfortunately, only lasted one season. But as an African-American man directing a Latino show, um, this show is called Brown and Black. And what we try is try to define that sweet spot between black and brown, brown and black. Kind of wanted to get your thoughts on Latin television. Why is it that we're seeing such a rise in black uh, storytelling, but we are seeing 
some sort of deterrent with Latino storytelling? First of all, <clears throat> the mainstream studios had to understand the Latin market is not monolithic, right? That what the Mexican audience wants may not be what the Puerto Rican audience wants versus different what the El Salvadorian audience, which is what the Spanish audience wants and so on and so on, right? So it's, it, you know, uh, you know, the, the, you know, slavery obliterated, you know, those cultural distinctions for black people when they came here. They're like, you know, like, okay, we're going to destroy your language. We're going to destroy your names. You're, so now we became Black Americans, right? And even though we had an amazing amount of cultural retention, uh, despite, you know, that uh, cultural holocaust, you know, it created a, you know, kind of a monolithic block, right? And now, you know, even though now you've got people who are trying to put Africans against Caribbean versus American Blacks, it's like... Dude, at least for our generation, like, come on, it's the diaspora. Sit, sit down, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. But, you know, uh, the Latin community hasn't had the benefit of that kind of horrific experience, right? <laughs> so, you know, so the fact is, you know, you've got to be more sophisticated about what you're telling. Mm. Um, now, now, there's interesting challenges on the other side, right? Which is on one hand, you know, you've got, you know, two very powerful networks, Univision and, uh, and Telemundo. Telemundo. Right, Telemundo, who speak to the Spanish speaking audience, right? And are enormously successful. And on any given night, maybe doing better than the traditional broadcast networks in cities like New York and LA and Miami, right? So, you, you've got an audience that, at least for some segment of it, right, they're getting super served, right? They're, they're getting a thing they want. So as opposed to we have no outlet for our culture and that frustration will force us to just bust down the door of mainstream studios, mm. right? You know, so you, don't, you have that thing. And also for that second, third, fourth generation, Right. They're like, look, I'm not trying to get into a ghettoized cultural thing. You know, I'm going to express my full Americanness. Right. So I'm listening to punk or I'm listening to hip hop or I'm doing what I'm doing, whatever I'm doing. But I'm defining myself in a broader way. Right. Now, the opportunity there is where's that show that expresses that person, right? Because there's a millions of them, right, who are doing that exact thing for whom, you know, the university content doesn't speak to them, right? And, but you, you really got to nail it, right? Because if they're like, no, 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 that's pandering, that's corny, you know, that doesn't speak to my experience. Leave me alone. I'd rather just watch Grey's Anatomy or I'd rather just watch something else. I don't want to see anything that's bumming me out. Right. So will that happen? It feels inevitable. Right. And it, you know, at a certain point, it's just at bats. Right. Because mm. it's not like so you get it. It's not like there aren't executives who know that's a sleeping giant waiting to happen. Right. So uh, I, you know, I just hope that happens. 
sooner rather than later. And I, the, you know, the other challenges as when you transition, you've got to let go of a lot of tropes, right? I mean, if you're going to do relevant content um, for that modern Latin audience, I mean, I think you can't say, let's get the widest looking Latinos possible on the show. You got to have some folks that really express the full uh, visual spectrum. Yeah. Yes, the entire is it? Oh, that's Central American. That's really more native than that. And you know, I, I want to see. I want to see what I see when I'm in LA. Can I see that on TV? Because I'll tell you, I want to watch that show. I mean, I mean, I know for me, um, when Jane the Virgin, when the posters and the ads were coming up. I said, man, I'm watching that. And my Mm. family was like, what? I'm like, we're watching that. And then we (laughs) turned it on and they were like, we are watching that. We love that. Wow. Awesome. Because that young lady looked real to me. She was beautiful, but she was not beautiful in some like, I'm trying to be fair Fawcett way. She was beautiful being her, her, her authentic self. And that was great for me and you know and that kind of and the and the storytelling we're like yeah we know those tropes and we're going to flip these tropes and we're going to have fun doing it i'm like yeah i'm down with that too so you know the same way i watched fresh off the boat i told my family we're watching that show we're watching that show we're watching that watching that show and we put it and they're like yeah we're watching that show (laughs) because (laughs) it was really well done you know so it's like you know, it, it's, you know, that, that, that balancing act of making something that's really relevant for that new Jack audience. A lot of people feel, you know, to, to kind of brace it, uh, an audience to embrace yeah. something like even the idea of a black president, mm-hmm. uh, even the idea of a black action hero, you know, it had to begin on the small screen. It had to begin somewhere else. We had to see the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We had to see a movie like The Man. You know, mm-hmm. we had to see all these different things. What are your thoughts on how TV can impact film and then culture and then vice versa? Yeah, I mean, it's very important. Look, I mean, they call it the Dream Factory for a reason. And mm-hmm. there's no question that, you know, 24, you know, was a factor that helped pave the way for Obama because he wasn't just a black president. He was a badass. He handles, he handles stuff, you know? So, I mean, I, I, you know, uh, uh, so yes, I mean, which is why going back to your Afrofuturist argument, we have to put our dreams on screen uh, because okay, that, yeah. then they go, Oh, I, I saw it and it seemed to work out on the TV. So it, it could probably work out for real. So that show, if it would take, Perhaps that show culturally to for people to embrace Latinos and see, like you said, that on screen, that full spectrum to change. Yeah. I mean, mind. you know, you can't do it with the like, OK, this one show and in the representation of your culture lives and dies on one show. Like, yes. No, no, that's not how it works. You, you know, you got a gang of people doing it, doing it, doing it. Full like, course press. Yeah. Right. Exactly. There's been a lot of talk about the demise of the comic book industry. Um, the business model no longer works. It's for collectors. There's been a lot of talk about it, but it seems like it's trying to have a second chance at life 
with diversity now, which uh, everybody knows that the pro- one of the problems about diversity is that there's too many white editors, white owners of these comic books that don't allow for those diversity stories to be told. But Milestone Media, the company you've created, um, is 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 one of the, the, those those representative those symbols that mm-hmm. the industry could change. Mm-hmm. Can the comic book industry be changed 2020 through 2030, or are we seeing the last ends of it? Well, first of all, you can find the comic book industry is going to die. You can go back 30 years of those stories, okay? Here's what trips me out. Tower Records is closed, but Golden Apple comic books is still open. <laughs> That's true. I, could you have imagined that the that comic book stores would last longer than record stores? But that's what happened. So, you know, these kind of glib predictions, you know, now that said, um, I mean, first of all, when you're judging the comic book business, there's two, there's two parts of that, right? There is the comic book business as in the IP of comic books, which is incredibly robust, right? And then there's the actual business of comic book periodicals, meaning you know, a monthly, weekly, whatever comic book, right? And yeah, for some, you know, for all kinds of reasons, the success of comic books and movies and television has not translated to the books themselves, uh, which is, you know, stunning. And, you know, my own kids, it's like, they love going with me to see the movies. I'll give them a comic book from my vast collection at home they're not interested, you know, and maybe we're in a post-literate culture. Uh, maybe, you know, I mean, look, I learned a lot from watching my daughter, uh, you know, with a book. She goes, I don't know all these people. I mean, like, what's the, uh, this requires too much, basically too much backstory for her. And by the way, <clears throat> which way do I read this book? Do I go left or right? Do I go across the pages or do I just finish a page, then go finish the next page? And here's the terrible answer. It depends. Sometimes it goes that way. Sometimes it goes that way. And that's an honest answer. And guess what? That's when the book gets put down and gets handed back to you. (laughs) You know, there's all these tropes in literally the process of reading a comic book that we take for granted that aren't necessarily being passed on to the next generation. And there are a complex set of rules when it comes to reading and understanding a comic book. Um, So (laughs) there's some real fundamental problems when you talk about why don't more people read comic books? Yes, I can also say, I wish we, when there was a, when there's a Wonder Woman movie in a theater, there should be a Wonder Woman graphic novel at the concession yes yes that would be a handy thing so yes there's those kind of marketing issues too but this reading chat i mean the idea that wait so who's this character oh man he was set up in issue 135 well this is issue 396 (laughs) how do i what issue 135 was before i was born well you need to catch up Oh, how about I just put this thing down? <laughs> right. 
Uh, well, all I got to say is, um, you know, comic books, they, they are definitely, the, the time has come and gone. That's all I have to say. It's ironic that comic books make, the movies make so much money, but hard, the, the market is so small. I guess my last question is, is what advice do you give? Uh, I think there's never, I agree with you, there's never been a better time to be a person of color uh, in this industry. I mean, we've still got a long way to go, but it's never been a better time. What advice do you give? to up-and-coming uh, storytellers, filmmakers? Uh, well, <clears throat> there's no reason to stop. If you want to learn about movies and learn from the masters, it's on your phone. If you want to shoot a movie, you can use your phone. If you want to edit your movie, it's on your phone. If you want to distribute it worldwide, you can do it on your phone. So, <laughs> I didn't have that. I mean, <laughs> you know, I couldn't access, you know, Variety and Hollywood Reporter. I mean, you know, you had to subscribe. It was expensive and I don't know. So there's, there's this huge amount of information that is available to you for the most part for free. So, and you can start making things and you can just start making things, you know, just start doing it. You, you know, you know, I don't know the rules. It's going to be bad. Good. Fail. Fail faster. Just keep failing until you get good. That's it for this 28th episode of Brown and Black. We thank Reginald Hudlin for stopping by the show and thank you for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. Follow us on Brown Black Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And also catch our second part episode with Keith McCorder coming up this week. Have a great week and we'll talk to you on another episode of Brown and Black. Are you ready to turn your best ideas into a thriving online business? Introducing Shopify, your no-excuses business partner. You might not realize, but our podcast, More Than Mammies, it's a business. And we started it, of course, to talk about maternity, not to become an e-commerce expert. So yeah, we needed some help selling our merch and getting our store up and running. Another sale. Shopify is a commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. No matter if you are a garage entrepreneur or a big business, Shopify is the only tool you need to start and grow your business without the struggle. With Shopify single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere, giving you the insights you need wherever you are. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash sonoro or lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash sonoro to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash sonoro. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch 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 -ch
Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.